0: For me, fashion is a verb, so it's to fashion.
1: You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. How often do you think about grasses? <laughs> it's not a trick question. I'm not talking about mowing your lawn either, um, and certainly not plastic grass. I hate plastic grass. That's a topic for another episode, maybe. But no, wild or native grasslands. Because my guest today would like us all to know more about these often overlooked but really important little plants and their role in the story of biodiversity. Simon Cameron is a wool grower, not a grass grower. or well, perhaps he's both. And if by any chance you've read my older book, Wardrobe Crisis, you might know that there's a chapter in there about wool. And it's actually about Simon's farm, I visited his property Kingston in Tasmania for the first time back in 2015 to find out how he raises his merino sheep and manages this very special property that has some of the last remaining pristine grasslands in the region. So there's whole chunks of it that have never been cropped. They've never had fertilizers on it. They're how it was pre-European settlement. Well, seven years later, I returned. This time, thanks to MJ Bale, the Australian menswear brand that's working with Kingston on what it calls its single origin suiting, so they can trace the fibre in the suits right back to Simon's farm. It's great. But also they're working together on this seemingly bonkers trial, but it's not because it's working, to feed sheep a very special seaweed supplement to reduce their methane emissions And this is actually uh, the first part of a mini series of two episodes. Because next week, we're going to hear from the seaweed guy, also in Tasmania. His name is Sam Elsom. If you want to find out more about what MJ Bale is doing to reduce their carbon footprint and go carbon neutral, and I'm just going to flag that because that is one of those phrases that people go, What? Is it real? Is it greenwashing? In this case, this is really trying to do it. This is proper innovation. And I've got to say, credit where it's due. I'm really impressed with this stuff. If you want to know more about it, you can look for our show notes, of course, www.thewardrobecrisis.com or just hop on their website, which is mjbale.com. Okay, so this is an interview about what? Sheep? I was thinking, did you see that ad that came out from Woolmark a few months ago with about fossil fashion with all the models dripping in oil, making that connection with if you wear synthetics... They come from petrochemicals. So this is a an episode about natural fibres for sure. It's also about our land and our responsibility to it. It's about biodiversity and the little things that get so easily overlooked. Grasses, insects, wildflowers. For me, it's also about connection to the people who help us. Um, I was going to say who make our products, but I'm going to say who help us because I was thinking about... I get to interview a lot of amazing people, which is so nice. Many of them then I never hear from again. They're super generous to give me their time and share their stories with us, aren't they? It's great. But you don't normally get too much follow-up after that. Some of them, though, they go over and above trying to help you. And Simon Cameron was one of those people. When my book came out, he wrote me this email saying he was buying copies for all his friends. (laughs) And I was like, do they really want it? Are they into fashion? But that's just the kind of bloke that Simon is. He's great. You're going to hear that. So this to me was about a personal connection and I'm glad to share it with you. It's also about, like I was saying, um, how we connect with the people behind the products. I make this podcast to, to listen to people like Simon, to get the opportunity to sit down with the people who are maybe in fashion or related to fashion, but behind the scenes, in the supply chain. The ones that I think we don't give enough time and space to, to hear their stories. Tell me what you think. Remember, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, at Mrs Press. But, oh, i got to tell you this. <laughs> oh, man. I was thinking about this and I just got to tell you, uh, it's just ridiculous. So, talking of stories, what you do not hear in this interview, because I didn't know it while we were recording, was that when we finished, it was dark, dark, And so I left Kingston and I'm in a hire car. And if you know me, you might know that I'm a dreadful driver and never drive, a nervous driver. So I left this property. I had to go down that dirt road, didn't I, in the dark and there's no lights. Every two seconds, a wallaby or a roo would just leap in front of the car. So I was like going at two miles an hour. Anyway, I got to the end, which seemed interminable and got to the main road, took a wrong turn off and somehow managed to traverse to the east coast of, of Tasmania through mostly dirt roads for two hours. It was swirling fog, it was freezing, the car was steaming up, so I had to have the windows open. I was chattering with with fear and frozenness, and honestly, constant animals leaping in front of the car. I cannot tell you, it was like being in a full horror story. <laughs> and the whole time I was going, I won't hit you. I promise I won't hit you. You'll be glad to know I hit nobody. But by the time I came out of it, I had white knuckles and at like 10 p.m. I popped out in a totally normal suburban road and was like, oh, (laughs) did that even happen? Welcome to Tasmania. (laughs) Do you want to come? Let's go. Let's go now. Meet Simon Cameron. Simon Cameron, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. And thank you for welcoming me into your house. Why don't you tell us where we
0: are? Well, it's um, clear. It's really nice to have you back. It's been quite a few years since you were here the first time. We're about uh, 60 kilometres southeast of Launceston in in the northern midlands of Tasmania Um, and as I describe uh, the location of my farm Kingston it's it's not off the beaten track, it's just at the end of the beaten track.
1: (laughs) I've got to say, when I was driving down here, so as we said in the intro, I've visited here before, I've been lucky enough to come here before but i'm pretty sure that someone picked me up from lawn because when i was driving myself down this very long um unfinished but but certainly navigable but got to say long and slightly full on road i was like am i ever going to get here <laughs> <laughs> there were wallabies jumping in front of the
0: car but it's uh, it does feel remote um look yes and no um we don't have uh, modern conveniences such as mobile phones. That's still a future project. Um, but I can get to the airport in forty minutes or a little bit less if the plane's leaving early. Um, and I can be in Sydney or Melbourne, you know, in a single flight from from um, from the nearby airport. So in one sense, it's quite remote, um, but in another sense, no, civilization's not that far away.
1: Well what do you do here?
0: Um, I Kingston's a family farm. Uh, it's it's been in the family since 1905. We have a little bit over 3,000 hectares, um, and on that we run uh, a few more than 5,000 sheep on a on an average year. Uh, within that, uh, with the within the land, it, it breaks down roughly into two parts. There's about 10%, maybe a little bit more. Which is our high productive areas where we run our ewes and lambs and and some of the young sheep. Um, so that's about three hundred hectares, and then we have the what we call the um, uh, the native country, or, or um, it's undisturbed in in a sense. It's as close as you can get to uh, what it was like when when the Europeans arrived, and there we run our male sheep, the weathers um and I have to say they're they're really important in managing that land um, so they have a role to play in the all-important land management that we do here at Kingston uh, but they also produce probably our best wool um, uh, it's um they're suited to that land and and that's where our premium wool comes from Kingston's not Simon Cameron's creation Um my father looked after this land for 50 years and if he hadn't done that and if he hadn't established the, uh, the superfine flock, I wouldn't have had a base to work from. And uh, we had a visit. I, I can go back a little bit further and it's probably important to do that. Um, we had a um, First Nation elder, Patsy Cameron, no relation, but um, Patsy came here a few days ago and we had a little ceremony ceremony uh, just in relation to something that we were doing. And if it hadn't been for Patsy's ancestors, then the shape of the country wouldn't be what it is. I took Kingston on in 2005 uh, on the death of my father and and I had some pretty difficult decisions to make in terms of which way forward for, for the land. Uh, and one of the things that happened at the time was that there was a natural value study Uh, done on the farm. And that was a a real junction in the road because that study uh, said in in black and white that the natural values that are contained on this property are possibly of national significance. Uh, Whoops. Um, What are the decisions that I'm going to make here? Uh, Am I going to try and preserve those natural values? Uh, Because once they're gone, they're gone. Um, or am I trying to um, be like um, my neighbour, for instance, who's moved into forestry and and probably will make a lot more money?
1: Let me just pick you up on that. What do we mean by natural values?
0: Okay, in Kingston's instance, uh, the really important natural values here are the lowland native grassland communities, Um, and the dominant species is... uh, Kangaroo grass themata, but there's a lot of other herbs and grasses that grow in with them and it's the biodiversity uh, that makes up the the, the community um, and that is what I mean we we, we talk about birds and animals uh, becoming extinct we we don't necessarily think that it's an imp- that we're impacting uh, our flora And in fact, of the native grasslands of this type that were here at European Settlement, uh, certainly in Tasmania, only 3% remain, which means that we've actually destroyed or converted to other uses 97% um, of what was here. And um, to put Kingston in context, uh, there's of the, of the 3% left, nearly 10% is found on one farm and really? that's Kingston. Yeah. I made the decision to look after the natural values but that's not without a cost, uh, not just reduced income. Um, the management of that land, the maintenance of it, um, the way it's got to be looked after has a cost and you mightn't think so but um, uh, and it's one of those ironic things. The harder you work the better the land looks, but the less it looks like you've actually done anything. Um,
1: It's interesting, Simon, isn't it, that grass isn't very sexy. People don't talk about it. We talk about, I'm going to say the cute things and I get why, but it's globally known that our koalas are in danger but we don't tell the story of the smaller things, either the smaller animals in many cases, but also the grasses, the insects, the wild flowers. We don't, those things don't make the headlines, but they are all part of this interconnected ecosystem or the ecology of a place, aren't they? And they're all important. I guess what I'm getting at is, it's funny, isn't it? The little things, perhaps it's obvious, perhaps not funny. But what happens is the small things get overlooked,
0: well, yeah, and, and of the, um, the ecosystems that are out there, uh, it's not the rainforests and, that you hear about that are the most endangered, it's actually native grasslands, and it's not just Australia, it's worldwide.
1: Why are they so valuable?
0: Because of their biodiversity, um, the, the, the multitude of species that, that are fostered uh, within them, um, and just their place, their place in the landscape, the ecosystem service that they provide, and they probably get overlooked be, uh, for their uh, carbon sequestration capabilities. Um, that you hear a lot about trees and stuff like that, um, but grasslands have got a really important role to play.
1: Who and what is supported by or hiding in the grasslands here?
0: The you can take that at a couple of different levels. There, are, there are um, little critters, um, skinks, and, and different types of lizards, and, and and things like that that you find around the base of tussocks and 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 on all that. Uh, there are birds, uh, different species of birds uh, that um, make their homes, um, lapwings and and um, other other little. Little birds that make their homes in the grasslands, um, but then there are all the the little plants that grow in amongst them, and um, you know my ability to identify them is pretty small. Um, but at the right time of year, um, there are some wonderful little wildflowers. I mean, you f- might have to get down on your knees to find them, but they're there, and and once you find one, then you keep finding more mm. and more and more. Yeah. And
1: also. Um Many native animals. We just went for a walk. We saw a wombat, and I'm very partial to a wombat. And actually, I've only ever seen one in real life before, so I was happy. But who else is up there? So you've got betongs.
0: We do. We do have some betongs. I've not seen any on the farm there, um, but there are some down the other end of the farm.
1: For a, an international listener, what is a betong?
0: A betong is a small marsupial. Yeah, it, it looks like a. Easiest described as a very small kangaroo. Um, got- less, l- less flatteringly described as a big rat. <laughs> uh,
1: All right, you got uh, quolls.
0: We do. Um, there's a couple of different types of quoll. There's a spotted tail quoll and the eastern quoll. Um, yeah, yeah. You don't you don't see them much, but you you do see them. Uh, if we were on television, I could show you a picture of a a, a little devil that. Um, uh we we found under the shearing shed
1: you've got tasmanian devils oh yes i mean please yeah. tell us about those guys
0: um how do you describe a tasmanian devil well aggressive <laughs> uh, yeah I, apex I, predator they yeah they're a little creature all of their own um and not so little when they grow up um but they They certainly have a very important role to play in, um, yeah, in the hierarchy of things. Um,
1: Are they healthy here?
0: Yeah, most of the ones that we find now are healthy. They're twenty-five, thirty years ago, there were a lot more than there are now. But we we still find well, we're probably finding a few more um, than we were say five years ago.
1: But Simon, while you have oh, actually, I've got to ask you about platypus because have you got one of those?
0: Yeah, funny you should ask um, Andrew, who you met. Um, Andrew, who uh, does most of the management of the farm and, and is primarily responsible for the for the livestock. Uh, he was. Um, you remember that river that we drove across? Well, he was uh, a bit further up the river, and um, yeah, there. And this was just yesterday. There was a little platypus swanning around. Um, just. Doing what platypuses do on a sunny afternoon.
1: Now, before we get off Australia's magnificent fauna, which is unseen anywhere else in the world, if you are listening to this uh, in Europe or in the States or have never visited Australia or seen these guys, a platypus is a thing of incredible weirdness, (laughs) isn't it?
0: (laughs) It's an egg-laying mammal. um, And I think there are two... uh, I think the echidna might be the other one. I'm not sure.
1: Well, he's also weird and I love him. We've got some incredible, incredible charismatic animals
0: in this country, haven't we? Um, I suppose. I mean, you're used to it. But honestly,
1: when I first came here from the UK, I was like, who are these guys? It's mad. So we will share some pictures if you're not familiar. We'll share some pictures of those animals. But let's talk about what you do in terms of raising animals on this property. Of course, sheep. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, here the farm is quite a difficult block of land um and one of its limitations is um uh the amount of grass that we can grow and um what the land itself can actually support what the, the native country uh can support so we focus on what's known as a fairly traditional type of uh merino sheep um Uh, Other people rudely call them old-fashioned. But one of our reasons for doing this, and and we work quite hard on our genetics, is it's an animal that suits the land. Um, And we manage Kingston. Managing the land is just as important as growing the wool. For us, they they work very much hand in hand. Um, We need land that can support the type of sheep that we have, but equally, uh, we need sheep that will do well and produce the best wool they can on the land that we have here. Um, so so we, we have these traditional superfine merinos and the good thing about them is the Italians, the top Italian weavers, still prefer wool from this type of sheep uh, for their top lines of suiting fabric. What we produce here and is contributed to by by many people. Um, there's those who've shaped the farm, um, such as Lindell, who you met um, last time you were here. There's the guy who helps with the genetics. Um, there's a fantastic wool classer called Evelyn. Um, she has come to understand the wool that we produce, understands what the Italians want, and 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 helps get the best out of. Uh, ...out of the clip. There's the guys in the shearing team led by Ricky. Um, They all are an important part of what we do... ...and and probably don't get the recognition that they deserve.
1: What is it about the quality of this wool... ...that makes it so covetable? This is a fashion podcast. Primarily luxury fashion is the end destination... ...for Superfine Merino, right?
0: Yes. Why? Why? I could say I'm a wool grower... ...not a fabric manufacturer... Um, what I understand is that uh, the more traditional wool styles um, the characteristic of the fibre it's not just its fineness it's the fibre structure itself which holds air uh, better than um, other genetics uh, other different types of merino we call them modern merino um and it has a compressioning characteristic so that um it makes it if you have a suit coat a suit jacket and you put it in the overhead locker of the aeroplane you're travelling when you at the end of the flight pull pull your jacket out and it goes back to its normal state um more rapidly and probably uh, more authentically than some other types of merino wool. Yeah, the, the, the easiest way to get an overview, a general understanding is um, there are different fibre thicknesses. So superfine uh, is a fibre thickness that um, goes from about 18.5 micron down to about 16 microns. Uh, there are other categories that are broader than that. Um, All have their uses. Um, But superfine, particularly around 17 and finer, uh, is sought after by um, the better weavers.
1: So it's lighter. It's also higher quality. It's also more expensive. And you also compete, right? I mean, people are trying to find the finest micron, right?
0: um or
1: are you not <laughs> you're it, like it's,
0: mm, that's not for me fi- fineness fineness has a role um certainly in in fashion product and and yes people do chase um uh, the pot of gold at the end of the mm-hmm. rainbow uh there's suiting uh fabrics out there which are down to perhaps 11 micron which really yeah yeah um that's extraordinary um, and um, it's priced accordingly. Uh, and it's beautiful and soft um, and there's not much of it, but it's not a suit you'd wear to the footy. Um,
1: <laughs> All right, let's talk about MJ Bale. They describe themselves as an Australian-owned gentleman's clothier making garments of integrity for men of character, which I love. But they also say... They pride themselves on tailoring expertise with natural fibres and particularly merino wool, obviously. And this whole idea of farm to cloth, which I think we're seeing so much more interest in in fashion in general that people want to know the stories about the fibres in the clothes that they buy.
0: I was lucky in that I had a chance meeting with Matt Jensen, who's the founder and, and CEO of MJ Bale, and um, actually, it was the same dinner where where we met um, way back.
1: I remember that. That was in a very fancy restaurant overlooking the Harbour Bridge. Yeah. It was for Vitali Barberis Canonico. And it was, uh, they have an award or a series of awards they give. Yeah. And it was, I think it was the 50th birthday of them working in Australia. It was very, very marvellous, wasn't it? Did you win? You were runner-up.
0: Uh, we came third, uh, which was yeah any, at any rate um at oh least- but there
1: was a pot of money wasn't there damn it I think there
0: for those a who came yeah. who came first yeah, yeah <laughs> Do you no. get a trophy sorry if, if you came <laughs> third you got a brass plate which is over there um <laughs>
1: but you did from that meet then but but I,
0: I i i met matt and and yeah i seem to be very good at digressing at the moment That's right. but but at any rate, um matt and i started chatting um we had a brief conversation at that dinner, and, and then that conversation grew. Um, I'd always had a dream to see something made out of my own wool because uh, you put all this effort in and then you the, the wool is harvested, you put it in a bale and you wave it goodbye and you really never know what happens. Um, Matt actually had a bigger dream. He wanted to uh, make a range of suiting from uh, single origin was the term, and um, he was looking around for somebody to work with to do that. The conversation developed into a business arrangement, and just towards the end of the discussions, um, and I said to Matt, "Look, how about a contribution back to the farm um, uh, from the suits that you sell?" And uh, this was just a very brief mobile conversation and he said, that sounds like a great idea. Um, Deal was done and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, um, the natural values on Kingston, which had been part of the attraction of dealing with Kingston, uh, were going to earn some revenue. Um, And uh, uh, it it was a big moment. And um, I have to say that that we've built on that and there are other sources of revenue that we've developed um, for farming the land the way we do. Uh, People are prepared to recognise that. Um, There's a philanthropic organisation, the Midlands Conservation Fund. Um, uh, They they assist us. And there's there's also now a federal government scheme, which we're part of a pilot of. Um, So... While I'm not a conventional farmer, um, in your terms, Claire, um, I am. I've got different revenue streams from within the farm um, that now make the enterprise viable.
1: Well, actually, in in the fashion context, we're always thinking about how can we reinvent business models that don't work, or how could we find ways to create embed sustainability into the products that we make and the processes through which we make them. That's what you're doing. Just because there is a certain way that most people do most things doesn't mean that's the only way. I love it.
0: Well, to survive, I, c- I couldn't compete just on wool alone. So um, what, I, what I tried to do was I tried to structure a product which extended the wool into something Mm -hmm. that encompassed how that wool is produced
1: it also means that if you buy an mj bale suit which they're called the the suit in question is called the kingston suit you're actually then participating in financially supporting these natural values being looked after i mean it's actually quite an appealing prospect for the customer as well
0: i i hope so
1: Let's talk about this new endeavour that you've also been part of, which is around climate action. It's to do with trying to reduce the methane levels that sheep produce. Can we start with just what even is that? So sheep are ruminants, right? What does that mean?
0: Yeah, what what that means is um, part of their digestive process process um, uh, means that they they produce methane which is a greenhouse gas and this is essentially where they they belch and and out comes the methane um and so what they're
1: chewing all the grass and they burp and fart out into a methane emission that's right but actually if you don't know about this it is quite mind-boggling and we're going to talk a bit more about it next week when we do this podcast about seaweed and sam elson and what his solution is but essentially, methane emissions are enormous, and the methane emissions from livestock, including cattle, not just sheep, are huge. So when we're talking about climate, this is a real problem.
0: It is a problem. It's um, the, the greenhouse gases that come from livestock, though, are not as detrimental as the fossil fuel ones. Um, I'm not a scientist, so I won't go down the path of trying to describe the difference, but... Uh, they do break down uh, in considerably less time.
1: Okay, but it is. I mean, if you don't know about this, and someone tells you a sheep burping is going to add to our global warming problem, you might not believe it. But this is actually what's happening, right?
0: It, it's what's happening, and um, there is a system in the UK in, in Europe, a labelling system that's been proposed uh, that gives fibres a uh, an environmental rating. And curiously, uh, natural fibres, not just wool, um, get a much lower rating, a worse rating than uh, man-made fibres.
1: Because of these climate impacts.
0: Because of the climate impact. And the big issue is the stats are fine. and, and, And as far as it goes, what they're saying is actually correct. It's just... The methodology that they've used um, really needs to be reviewed and, and hopefully amended uh, because, you know, intuitively a fibre like wool, if you look at the whole life cycle uh, and it, it's where it comes from, the role of the animals, the fact that it biodegrades, um, it has a much better footprint than a synthetic fi- uh, fibre um but we've just got to be able to demonstrate that now from from my point of view one of the things that was really important and and i came across this and i and and i was really uncomfortable with it um but 50 percent of the greenhouse gases that um are part of uh the wool life cycle actually happen on farm there was two things that that Worried me. One was how correct was that number because it's being used in international calculations. Uh, And I was lucky enough to participate in a um, a natural capital accounting uh, analysis of the farm, um, which said that the numbers that are relevant for Kingston uh, are well below the international benchmarks, uh, which is a nice place to be. Um, but we need to demonstrate that for more wool growers, not just Kingston. Um, and I have to say that in that same study, there were three wool growers from Tasmania and all of them had uh, a positive carbon footprint. Mm. The terminology gets a bit confused, um, but it on each of those farms, we were sequestering more carbon than we were emitting. Um, so uh, good good place to be but we still need to work on it.
1: This is very interesting on two two points there. One is that we have such a problem with the numbers when it comes to quantifying fashion's impacts. Regular listeners will be familiar with this from previous podcasts, but we'll share some links to particularly the work of Veronica Casalti, who's doing a lot to unpack the reasons why organisations like the Sustainable Apparel Coalition are recommending that we use more albeit recycled synthetics than certain natural fibers actually if you unpack all these figures it's almost impossible to say that fiber a is more sustainable than fiber b because it depends on context how it's produced where it's produced the methods that have been used so what is this crackerjack plan that you've been working on with sam elson who runs an organization called sea forest also in tasmania and we're going to see him next week
0: so the opportunity came up uh, to pick up on some work that our main scientific organisation, the CSIRO, had done. Um, so they'd taken a seaweed, red seaweed, called asparagopsis, and they'd run trials which said that, uh, or suggested, that methane emissions could be reduced by, I forget, 90%, I think it was. It was a very, very high number Um and uh, I was fortunate by enough,
1: feeding by feeding the sheep the seaweed by by feeding mm. by
0: yeah by feeding by feeding sheep or cattle
1: a supplement made from the su- seaweed as yeah, part of that yeah Re- diet. relatively
0: small amount but but still you've got to go through the process of feeding them um, so we sallied forth last year actually it was the year before now and um, we ran a small trial with, with fifty sheep. Uh, Sam provided us with some of the very first asparagopsis that had been produced from his uh, operation Um, and we we fed that each day. Um, It was a project done in conjunction with the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture Um, and it had all the necessary animal ethics uh, um, support that was required because one of the things that worried me was... What's going to be the impact on the animals themselves? Oh, of course. We're we're, we're changing their diet now. Um, came up in conversation the other day. It's certainly not the first time that uh, sheep have been fed seaweed. It happens in Scotland apparently quite a lot. Um, but any anyway, rate, it so so it was a bit of a change in diet, albeit less than one percent. Um, and uh, it wouldn't do me much good if that one percent or less, uh, turned the wool green. Because um,
1: so, <laughs> you didn't know. Yeah. Um,
0: you know, I, 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 I had a, a real interest in, in understanding the impact on the animals and then the secondary one was the product that they produced. And uh, this trial, which was... Uh, we had a control group, so we, we were measuring against what would happen normally. Um, and uh, what we found was there was uh, no impact on the animals. And very little impact that we could see um, in relation to the wool. The the wool uh, was certainly of a um, uh, a production quality um, and in some instances may have been a little better. We've harvested the wool and some of it's now on its way to Italy um, to be made into a very narrow uh, line of clothing. Um, And yesterday... uh, the balance of it, in um, a small quantity, in a couple of small bales, actually left Kingston by bicycle to keep down the footprint. Um, and uh, a an extraordinary man called Two Dogs uh, bicycled from Kingston to Hobart. Up or that he, road
1: I drove down. Oh my gosh! And uh, all the way to Hobart.
0: <laughs> he's well. He's he's still on the road. he he, he gets to Hobart about lunchtime tomorrow with the 30-odd the kilos um, in a little trailer. Um, and there it then gets transferred uh, to his sailing boat, which is a sailboat, no combustion engine power, so it's, it's only sail. And he's sailing across to Geelong where the wool will get processed.
1: Like Greta Thunberg when she <laughs> had to sail across the ocean to save the carbon emissions. Okay, this um, is good. <laughs> but
0: I'm, 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 I'm digressing. Um, we've we've got a second stage trial, uh, which we're now well into, started late last yeah. year. So we scaled up and we've now got 500 sheep being fed asparagopsis. Um uh, they're being fed in a, in a pellet form this time. Um, so it's a trial to understand the feeding process. Um, and uh, with a bit of help, we'll be doing measurements to make sure that it's actually doing what we, we, we want it to do. Mm. Um, and we'll harvest that wool in October. Extraordinary. That, that trial runs through to... Um, yeah, to October. Um, requires a fair old commitment because you've got to feed them every day. There's an awful lot of stuff. You know, These are steps that you wouldn't normally yeah, have to do for sheep produ- for expense, wool production. Expense,
1: because they'd normally be eating the grass and you wouldn't have to worry about it.
0: That's, yeah, no, no well, well picked up on that. And um, they've come up in conversation a bit, but they deserve to. Um, the asparagopsis, which is quite expensive. Uh, is actually being provided by by mj bale they um yeah their partners big time in this mm. um, because they they want while they're a carbon neutral organization right now they they do that as do a lot of other organizations and products by buying credits yeah um, and you know that's okay that might tick a box but is that really the end game so so what these guys are up to is they're trying to decrease the footprint of their products which should result in fewer credits being being you know being genuinely moving genuinely towards being carbon neutral um, there's a big difference
1: it's so interesting simon i want to know why you think that wool as a fiber outside of this trial or some of the innovations that you're working on at kingston is sustainable we just mentioned the current controversy around labelling that's happening in the EU. But why do you think wool is inherently sustainable?
0: It really... What do you mean by sustainable? <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm... You know, sustainable can can mean so many different things. Um, are we talking about being good with the environment? Um, are we talking about having... An enterprise that has a future, um, and and I, I was talking to some other wool growers, actually some South Africans, and and they 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 said to me, "But is your business model sustainable? Um, uh, it's got to be viable." And and um, yeah, so if I'm for me, it comes back to can i make kingston work um and we're producing an extraordinary fiber a, a, a wonderful fiber and, and it, it's hard to to convey you've really got to put your hands into it smell it um feel it um to to understand what we're talking about this is before it's turned into some wonderful piece of clothing or uh whatever it's used for um and, and the animals that are producing that fibre are also helping manage the land. They're hel- helping with the biodiversity, provided we manage them correctly. Um, so it's it's a bit more to it than just, is wool a sustainable fibre? We have to look big picture. Um, and you know that there's... I'm just a farmer um, and and I try and do the right thing by the land and the animals. But there are other people like Alan Savory who are real promoters of the importance of animals um, in positive environmental outcomes. Um, you don't have to believe me, you can go read about Alan.
1: When you talk about sustainability for you, meaning that you're able to keep doing what you're doing on this property that is in its fourth generation... You obviously feel a weight of responsibility.
0: I'm not... I mean, the answer to that may surprise you a little. I really hope that I can set it up so that somebody, and preferably my family, can keep it going. Um, but also in the back back of my mind is that I've been working at it. I've done my bit while I can, it'll then become somebody else's turn. And, you know, I can't control that. So I try not to lose sleep over that. Mm.
1: Uh, I always always, um, worry about how much responsibility farmers have. It's a really difficult, obviously it depends by circumstance, location, what you grow, how much money you got. I understand that, but I do think that universally farming is tough stuff and that you have to... There's a lot of stress involved, isn't there? Even when we think about things like fires. We're in Australia. I asked you before, did the fires, the dreadful fires of two years ago reach here? And he said, no, luckily not this time. But the pressures of working land in a looking climate after change animals. future, looking, looking after, after animals, animals, all of it, it's a, a lot, right? it's a huge
0: responsibility. Um, and... We do cop it. There are generalizations that are put forward um that uh, farmers trash the land and maltreat their animals um, I'm sure if you looked hard enough, you could find examples of that, but not in the majority of farmers it's just not in their interests uh if you If you don't look after your land, then it's not going to be productive um uh and and you lose out you may win in the in the short term uh, but you won't win in the long term
1: let's finish on what you hope that people might learn from this about wool or might come to understand about wool we've seen the prices go down we know that the market share i would noted it down somewhere but it's it's fallen from if you look at the fiber basket i don't have the numbers at the top of my head but we i can tell you this polyester is 53% of the global fiber basket and growing and wool is a shrinking piece of an already small it's part less of less than that 1% pie. Now, is it
0: less than 1% yeah yeah um, and yeah i mean i i i'm not sure why it's Share has sh- shrunk well, It's expensive
1: mm? Expensive
0: Perhaps, Yes per, I mean it, it's um, I mean in, in a sense Wool is the antithesis of fast fashion um, You know a, a good item of woolen clothing Is more of an, an investment If you like um, I won't say a timeless piece Because I want you to buy more than one um, <laughs>
1: How old your jumper Simon <laughs> How old's that jumper you got on now?
0: Oh, I don't know, five years old. That's um, all right. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> I mean, it's only not, at just, least you didn't say fifty. <laughs> it's only just started. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I think also that that the characteristics of wool have not been promoted, um, and I, I I sort of feel that people are okay with wool. Um, but they don't understand or they didn't understand what goes on behind it, the importance of not just the fibre, but uh, the way it's produced, the farming that goes on behind it. Um, In the case of Kingston, the land management that's really an integral part of producing that wool. Um, But I, I have to say that some of the younger generations that are coming through um, are starting to latch onto this, this um, traceability thing and um, I, I just have a wonderful photo on the wall in the shearing shed which um, is uh, it's from one of the early MJ Bale shoots that they did down here. Um, we've described where we are a long way from most places um, but um, we still have photo shoots done here which just adds to the authenticity of what those guys do. But at any rate, in this first one, um, we ended up with three models standing um, on an old tree and running around them or moving around them was the mob of sheep from which that wool in their suits had been derived. I mean, you know, that surely is traceability that you just cannot beat. Um, And and, um, uh, it's... It's not just tra- traceability, it's transparency. Um and, and you know, working with the MJ Bale guys. Um it's shortened the, the communication in the supply chain, uh, which is which has been terrific from my point of view. Um and it's it's really helped. I think it's helped um uh in at the retail end of things. Uh, it's given a better understanding to the guys who've actually got to to sell the products um, and I oh, mean sometimes when I've been in the store I've been fortunate enough to to meet customers and um, we actually had one back here to the farm oh god um, <laughs> and, it, and it was yeah, you know, it was it was just a big event for that guy but uh,
1: watch out—they're all going to be here if they can take that 12k dirt road odyssey <laughs> off the main road after they've driven for however many hours. I've got to get back to.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but this is this is what you know. The, there's there's not an oil well behind wool. There's a whole fantastic story um and i mean it's not it's not just the grower um we need transparency the the way the fabric is woven and finished is extraordinary and and then the skills that go into the tailoring and stuff like that um these are the things that we need to put a higher value on um not just some flimsy item that we can throw out you know when we've worn it at the weekend um Yeah, sorry, I'm just a farmer. I don't understand fashion. I think you do. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: perfect, Simon. I love it. Uh, Well, thank you very much for having me back to your kitchen table. I don't know how many years after the first time I came here, but watch out. I'll keep turning up. See you again in five more years. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too, and on Twitter. I'm at Mrs Press. My friends all feel good. I'm carrying, I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you, because I love you Because I love you, because I love you Because I love you